All right, open up your Bibles to Jude as we continue our Sunday school study through this book. Some would say we haven't gotten too far. I would say maybe we've gone too fast on some of the topics that we've covered thus far. But uh, we are looking at verses 2 and 4, which read as follows. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. And those are the points uh, that hopefully we'll be able to get through here this morning. And then Jude continues, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word lasciviousness simply means filthiness or unbridled lust. And we talked last time about how this word or this phrase contention or contend for the faith, it means to struggle for. It means that there is a battle ahead. And we're going to see a little bit more of that in our main service message this morning as we continue to look at the armor that Paul was writing to the Ephesians about that are, are necessary garments for the Christian. So the uh, exhortation that Jude receives here is one immediately in the beginning of verse 2 of strength, of mercy, peace, and love that's been granted unto the born-again believer and multiplied. Uh, if you will, it's almost as though it's just a seedling, that first exposure to mercy, peace, and love that is intended to continue to grow, to continue to be multiplied through a lifetime of experiences and a lifetime experiencing showers of blessings to go with those seasons of drought, that we would continue to grow and continue to be used and continue uh, to be exposed to God, that we might continue to illuminate a dark world with his light. The first thing we want to notice here is that very first word, mercy. And it's God's mercy that we're seeing here. The mercy of God is the spring and fountain of all the good that we have or that we would hope for. It is mercy, so let us understand that it is unconditionally applied to those who could not earn it, to the miserable and to the guilty. There will be those that say, oh, there's that uh, that hyper-Calvinist phrase, unconditional. Well, beloved, if it was conditional, wouldn't all be saved? Wouldn't all be just great human beings that we want to be a part of? How many politicians do you know that already don't fit that bill? How many spouses? How many co-workers? How many neighbors do you know that clearly uh, seem to have more of that ungodliness that's exposed at the end of this text than this mercy that we see in the very first part of verse 2? It's unconditional, and it's a godly characteristic. We saw this at the end of last year as we were going through the characteristics of God. Listen to Romans 5, verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is telling us that one of the greatest, and I'd say the greatest, showings of God's love towards his people was shown while we were still sinners. Shown before we could even hope to, to defend the notion that we would earn it. Before we would even desire it. While we were yet sinners. Jesus references Saul later in Acts as a persecutor. So while we were yet sinners, while we were yet persecuting him, what did that look like in that last week of Christ's ministry? 
It looked like Jews, God's own people, shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So before we put ourselves on a delightful pedestal saying that we were, uh, we were sinners, but man, we were close, no, it'd be better for you to picture yourself as one of those Jews crying out, crucify him, crucify him. That's where we were when he died on the cross. When God showed the greatest amount of his love for his saints was when we were shouting out, kill him. It's unconditional, this mercy of God. Described here as a process of a lost hope restored consider lamentations chapter 3 if you will lamentations chapter 3 verses 18 through 26 as the writer says and i said my strength and my hope is perished from the lord remembering mine affliction and my misery the wormwood and the gall my soul hateth them still in remembrance and is humbled in me this i recall to my mind therefore have i hope it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Some might remember these words from that song I made us sing uh, day after day after day uh, during my short run as the song leader. Great is thy faithfulness. His mercies, his compassions fail not, the writer says. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him the lord is good unto them that wait for him to the soul that seeketh him it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the lord now the jude doesn't speak directly of hope in this first sentence but all three of the things including multiplied all four of these things are rooted in hope mercy peace, love, and a multiplication of these things. We have to hope in this. Faith is described as the substance of what we hope for in Hebrews 11.1. 1. If we do not hope for the mercy, peace, and love of God and it to be multiplied over, over the time in which we are here in this life, in this world, then I would say that we need to prove that our calling and election are, tr are true, are indeed what we say them to be. It is by his mercy that we have faith. If, if you're still there in Ephesians from our uh, scripture reading, consider Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 10, through 10. Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, this echoes what we see there in Romans 5, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of your works it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Paul illustrates for us, for those who maybe still have the idea that uh, we earn our salvation, he illustrates for us a sequence of things. We, if, if works earns our salvation, how were we saved while we were yet sinners? That our works would have been uh, obnoxious before God, abominable before God, rejected of God because we were sinners. We couldn't have worshipped him because we didn't have the spirit to. 
even if we had the truth. And we have to have spirit and truth to be able to rightfully worship, as the Lord explains to the woman at the well. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. We see here Jesus speaking in parable. He says unto the certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they despised others. He says unto them, Two men went up unto the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing far off, or, yeah, the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This is Jesus speaking. For everyone that exalteth himself shall, uh, shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. See, what's illustrated here is the Pharisee confesses all these things that he is not. Extortioner, unjust, adulterer. Uh, he probably could have kept going. Maybe he's never murdered someone. Uh, maybe he's never cheated on his taxes. Maybe he's genuinely a good guy. He's still totally depraved. And that's what the Lord illustrates at the end. There's nothing worthy of exaltation of this man. There's nothing worthy of boasting, of bragging. And his spirit is puffed up. It, we see this as he compares himself to another who prays. We would be appalled if one man stood in this church and prayed and said, I'm glad I'm not like Isaac, or vice versa. We'd say that's arrogant. That's ignorant. And we know this because Scripture proves it to be so. And this is what we see here between the Pharisee and the, and the publican. Sadly, time has allowed for us to say, well, maybe publicans, all publicans, are better than all Pharisees. That's not what Christ is illustrating here. He's illustrating that none are worthy, that none are righteous. He's literally talking to a certain that trusted in themselves to be righteous. He says, none of you are. Some of those who heard that day no doubt said, I'm like the Pharisee. I'm pretty good. Others said, I'm like the publican. But all need the blood of the Lamb. Notice who our Lord is speaking to here. Again, unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This publican had nothing to offer God. Nothing worthy of lifting his eyes unto heaven. For yet Jesus says this man was justified before God. You mean a man can have nothing? Nothing to boast of? No great character traits to brag about on Facebook. No resume of good deeds and still go unto God justified. Uh-huh. He needs Christ. That's all he needs is Christ Jesus. All he needs is to be washed by the blood of the Lamb. There's nothing else he can add to it that would not try to diminish the blood of the Lamb. But he must be born again. If you're hearing this sermon and you're disheartened, be of good cheer. God's mercy is not something you need to apply to. It's not a credit card from the bank or a loan from the bank that you have to qualify for. You're already qualified. You're all sinners. Everyone in this room, you are, and myself included, a sinner. 
You have already spent a lifetime qualifying for deliverance by being as wicked as you possibly can. One would stand and say, I wasn't as wicked as I could have been. I bet you were as wicked as you desired to be. That's the truth for all of us. And every one of us qualifies because of our sinfulness that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. Repent of your sins today. Seek the mercy of God. He's your only hope. Hope's not illustrated here again, as I said, of the writer. But what he speaks of is hope. What he speaks of is a, a three-folded court required for there to be hope. Understand that by implication of its blessings, we will fail. He's blessing us, or speaking of the blessing of mercy from God, because we're, we're destined to need it. We're going to fail. We're going to need to repent. And tomorrow we're going to get up and we're going to need to repent again. And by the end of the day, no doubt we'll have a few more things to repent of. We have not the ability to obtain nor to retain our salvation. It is of God alone. It is kept for all eternity, praise the Lord, for all the sore need Christians out there who truly are faithful enough to repent. But pride is a wicked thing. Pride is to be abhorred. It is, to be, it is something that we should be disgusted of. When the preacher says, submit unto the baptismal waters and be faithful and join the church, ye who are born again. And we might in ourselves say, I shouldn't have to. We might in ourselves say, we can worship without doing that. Finish the sentence. Finish the sentence. Well, we can worship without being faithful unto God. No, you can't. No, you can't. That's not a pastor talking, seeking members. That's someone who's tried. That's someone who's tried to be faithful unto God and not done what he said. This is that discernment piece we talked about last Sunday, how we pray for deliverance, we pray for deliverance, we pray for deliverance. And when God says, follow me, we say, we're going to keep praying for deliverance and praying for deliverance because we don't want to do that. We don't want to adhere to what you're telling us to do, God. That's uncomfortable. We don't want to repent. We don't want to submit. We don't want to consecrate. Those are difficult things. And God says, He who does not die unto himself and take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy. Those are Christ's words. You're going to need this mercy. I need this mercy. The second thing he talks about is God's peace. Next to mercy is peace, which we have from the sense of having obtained mercy. Oh, if you've ever known your need of mercy, and you're born again, you've known a taste of peace. It's, it's momentary in this life. It's fleeting in this life. This life continues to remind us of misery and death every single hour. But the peace we know from experiencing mercy will eventually lead to that multiplication point we have at the end of this outline. Having a taste of mercy is like having grandma's cherry pie one more time. No. If I could have my grandma Hatcher's cherry pie one more time with that thick, I mean, it was so much sugar on the top of that thing, it crunched when you bit into it. You could taste the love, the work that went into it, for me, it was even even better. As you got to the tart of the cherry, 
I was reminded that none of my cousins like cherries. I'm the only one. Grandma made that pie for me. Now, peace is way better than cherry pie. But I think that's an illustration we could probably wrap our heads around. Biting into that peace, that's an action. That means the next trial you go through, and you take a bite of that peace pie, and you're reminded of God's mercy, this trial must be for me. This trial doesn't seem to afflict my neighbors, doesn't seem to bother my, co my co-workers or my boss. This trial must be for me. It must be for my good, Romans 8, 28. God must have allowed for this thing because I needed it. I need the strength. I need to be reminded of his mercy. I need to be reminded again of his, his love. Whatever the reason might be, this trial is for me. So with peace, take a bite of it. Understand that it's in front of you. Take the time to pray for it to be removed. But if God doesn't remove it, understand he must have for you to go through it and follow after him. We must... I'm sure it sounds like a riddle. I'm sure it sounds like a riddle. Why would Christians want to go through hard times? Why would Christians want to suffer? Why would... Uh, why would any of this be true? And, and one of my favorite church sign quotes reads, No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. The first two no's are N-O, the second two no's are K-N-O-W. I'm sure it's lost on those who can't see it, but on paper, understand, it's really witty if you could see what I'm seeing. No Jesus, no peace, the sign says. But if you know him, if you know him, then you are enabled to know peace. How do we get to the point where we know peace? Mercy. He showed himself unto us, and in showing himself unto us, we saw God the Father. And as Isaac read in Ephesians 1, we, we saw but, but a taste of the inheritance that we have. We have in the Holy Spirit, but uh, if you allow me to say so, in the Holy Spirit, a type of the eternal peace, the perfect peace that we will know for all eternity at the conclusion of this life a comforter in these places, in these times of trial. It's by his mercy that we might know him, and by knowing him that we may know peace. It is no dangerous thing for Baptists to share the joy of God's peace with the entire world. And we should. It's way better for us to show the world God's peace than for us to get stirred up every single time Asbury has a revival. Every single time Biden pops up in the Ukraine and Hunter pops up with a secret laptop. We should be showing the world joy. Not frantic misery and panic because people are depraved. We already know that. It's in the very first book of the Bible. Not too many pages in where we read of the fall of man, and just as many chapters later, we read that man's imagination is only evil continually. We know this. Do we have faith in what we read? Then when we read later that he is able, we can have faith and believe it. When we read in John 16 that he's overcome the world, so we can be of good cheer, we can read it and believe it because we have faith in God's word. Without this faith, without the experience of mercy, we have no peace. But with it, we should have and display peace. Let me go back to this again. It is no dangerous thing for Baptists to share the joy of God's peace with the entire world. It will not change who can hear it. 
But how will they hear lest someone actually takes the word of God and preaches it and speaks of it and illustrates it and delivers it? How will they hear without a man to preach? How will they hear without the book being read? A man can't preach lest he's read the word of God. And if he's preaching, he ain't preaching the word of God if he's never read the word of God. Malachi, as we've said many times in the past, delivers uh, in his book that it's a burden of the Lord. And, and I, when we talk through it, I hope I express that that's not a bad thing. Malachi knew his purpose. I know my purpose. My wife could tell you, there was a great deal of peace that came upon my heart when the Lord called me to preach. And it was a surrender, as we've talked about in the past, to that calling. But it was a great rejoicing. I know what I'm here to do now. I'm here to preach the word of God. And there was the same dose of peace when I was uh, salvation was revealed unto me. I know that I have eternal security in God the Father because he chose me. He loves me. He's redeemed me. But I'm afraid a lot of Baptists these days, as soon as they learn it, throw it in a box and lock it away. Don't want to lose it. Don't want to let it out. As great collectors, if, if we allow the sunshine to hit it, it'll fade. If we allow the air to get to it, it'll mold. That's not the gospel that we've been given. And our treasures are in a place that moth, uh, rust and moth cannot corrupt. I mean, everything else that you try to collect in those boxes, you'll find they still mold, they still fall apart, they still decay, or if even preserved to the utmost ability, it's given to a generation that doesn't want it. Prove me on this. But this gospel, this gospel, read some Baptist history. Read through the, the, the analogs of time, of the many uh, trails of blood that came from this church that the Lord established in his ministry, and those who have stood and fought for the truth of God's word. They fought because they believed in what they read. They contended for these promises because they knew them to be true. Read to the end of Hebrews 11. Those that they weren't able to see and experience the promise in that life still had their eyes set upon it. They were still focused on it. So focused that they recognized themselves to be but pilgrims in this land. Strangers looking for a more perfect country. I think at times that God is allowing America to slip away because we've allowed ourselves to believe this was a perfect country. She's far from perfect. And no, I'm not going to hallmark it up and follow that with, but she's ours. Uh, it's more of a detriment at this point. She's far from perfect, and she's ours. We lost sight of the gospel. We own this. We own everything that's happening out there. Revivals based on false truth, we own that. A nation embracing homosexuality when we were called to preach against it, we own that. The idea and concept of mother nature and pets to be lifted to such a place that they're now idols, we allowed for these things to happen because we weren't preaching the truth of God's word. We weren't contending for these things. We now look to a generation of folks after mine that have very little interest in the Lord's church, very little interest in the word of God, very little uh, investment in the idea of conviction toward anything. I'm not attacking millennials. There are 40-year-old, quote-unquote, millennials. There are 
15-year-old, quote-unquote, millennials, if that's what you want to call them, but I, I think millennials making it too easy on us. We were to preach the gospel to all nations, and perhaps we've forsaken this generation that we will soon have to look to to fill our pulpits, to lead our churches, to play our pianos, and to lead this country. Why do we keep looking to career politicians to solve the problem of career politicians? Self-preservation, baby. They have no reason to do away with it. None of them, even the most honest politician, has no reason to do away with career politicians because they are career politicians. Why don't you run? You who have an understanding of the Word of God, why don't you run? Why don't you defend these principles in your communities, in your home? In your state. Second Peter chapter one verses two through four says, Grace and peace, and we see that multiplication again. Jude is writing of it, Paul's made reference to it, but then Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God. We now see a, a form of this mathematical problem coming into fruition. That through the knowledge of God, grace and peace are multiplied. I wish I had a, a dry erase board. Isaac could come up and put that story problem into a numerical equation. But if we had grace and peace inside the parentheses, what that, what's happening to them is the, uh, what is outside the parentheses, and that's the knowledge of God. The greater that knowledge of God, the bigger what's going to be in the parentheses. Basic math, I know, but uh, accurate nonetheless. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. There's that called principle again, which Jude also spoke of. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. <coughs> It's interesting to put Second Peter side by side with Jude because he, he talks about what we've escaped here at the conclusion of his portion of verse, this is verse 2 through 4 of Second Peter chapter 1, and in Jude where there's only one chapter looking at verses 2 through 4, we see lust come back in at the end of verse 4 again for him. Peter says that we were delivered from that lust. Jude says we must contend for this truth that others be delivered from this lust because the ungodly are sneaking in unawares turning God's word, God's promises, unto lasciviousness or filthy lust, unbridled lust. Oh, how many promises he's made to the dear saints. Uh, these, these are promises, these are sprinklings of mercy and blessings that were poured out, that were planned to be poured out before the foundation of the world. God knew our every need. We should find such joy in the fact that he has found it necessary to rejoice in us to feed us, to water us, to bless us in the manner that he's elected to do. John 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I think that's a verse we ought to write down to really pray for a deeper understanding of this week. John 14, 27, let me read it again. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. He went as a, a lamb before the slaughter, not speaking against what was coming, but trusting in the Father. We might think it was possible because he knew how it was going to end, 
But those hours were torturous. The shame, the beatings. I mean, he was 100% man and 100% God. Everything he experienced, he experienced like we would because it was our sin. The conclusion of the cross, he experiences a forsaking that the elect of God will never know. So he went through all of this, feeling everything we would feel, and it was magnified by the fact that he was forsaken by God so that we could be claimed. He says, my peace. He speaks of a peace that conquered what he experienced, not a peace that would conquer the minuscule things we're experiencing. Our, our, our trials... It, it would be so much clearer if we could see our trials from an elevated view, would it not? I mean, the first week of January, oh, this is the worst. The, the things that I'm going through is absolutely horrible. But if, you, if I don't see you again until the last week of March and I say, how's that horrible trial going? You're probably going to be like, which one? Think about that. And we're talking about 14, 15 weeks at most. Shortest month of the year is in there. And at that point, you have more trials, and that one trial that was going to be the end of you, the greatest trial you've ever experienced, is now behind you. The process of time has put it into proper perspective, but in the hour, you had no peace. But the peace that Christ pours out is a peace that has faced down demons greater than ours. It has conquered it has been victorious. And he says, I give it unto you, not as the world would give it unto you. How would the world give it unto us? Conditionally. I'll give you this free t-shirt. You sign up for a credit card for life, which also includes the benefits of spam emails for a lifetime, random phone calls from creditors, and we'll sell that debt if you don't pay it, and so on and so on and so on and so on. That's how the world gives, but Christ gives it unconditionally. He says, I give it unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He knows where trouble and fear come from. It comes from doubt. He's given us peace to conquer that doubt. H.A. Ironside once wrote, In the enjoyment of that peace given of God, the soul can pass quietly on its way amid all the strife of tongues and the confusion of the evil day, resting in him who is over all and who sitteth o'er the water floods. You see, if the peace was from the pastor, or if the peace was coming from yourself, it's in that furnace too. But your peace is coming from one who has beaten all things, who has overcome the world. He's literally sent his peace back into a war zone he's already conquered. For you, that you be not troubled and be not afraid. I think it's a good place for us to leave off and we'll pick it back up with God's love. I pray that you will consider John 14, 27 this week. That you might find a, a greater understanding of this peace that comes from the mercy of God and what it is for you. I could stand up here and, and witness and tell you what that peace means to me, what it is to me, how I define it, how I've been led to utilize it or experience it. It's not going to help you. It's going to be different for you. Uh, the trials that Eddie goes through aren't the trials that I go through. The trials that you've overcome might be greater than the trials I will ever experience. Understand that the Lord knew all these things. When he stitched together everything that we were going to need in the, uh, in the package that he put together before the foundation of the world, he knew exactly what you would face, and he left you more than a conqueror. Already victorious. 
can't wait to get into the armor. Let's close with a word of prayer. We'll have 